Well, good afternoon and welcome. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here. Um, and uh, we are yeah, now six or seven weeks into our series on the Word of God. And we're only two weeks into the story of the Bible. So if this is your first week with us, it's still a great time to be kicking things off. Um, Also, on on what Jacob was sharing about getting into the Word, I would encourage you, whether it's been a good week or a bad week, month, year, decade, whatever it is, tomorrow's a new day and a great chance to get back into God's Word. Um, We're told in God's Word that man does not live off bread alone, but off the very Word of God. And if all you're getting is two meals a week on a Sunday and when you meet with a small group, you are on starvation rations. And so I'd encourage you, whatever you can do to be in God's Word week in and week out, to do it and to continue to encourage one another in that. Um, um, We're moving through the story of the Bible, so we are now right at the the beginning of this story, moving all the way through over the next, well, there's another seven weeks to go. Um, but, uh, But the reason we want to get into this story is so that you'll have a grasp on how the whole Bible fits together so that there might not be kind of black patches throughout it where you're unsure of, of what's happening or where it's tracking, but you might be able to dig deep into every part of Scripture and to draw the deep treasures that are in there out, that you might know God and live for Him. And this week, we, we are picking up just after what is really a high point. Creation, God creates everything good, and really no sooner than three chapters in, it's all gone wrong. And I reckon this is significant for your understanding of how the Bible fits together. But whether you are convinced of who Jesus is or not, it's significant because it addresses what the Bible says is the biggest problem in the world. Because this is the truth. Whatever you believe is the most significant, urgent, pressing problem in the world, that is the thing that will determine and dictate your behavior. This, this struck me recently when I found myself in the unenviable position of trying to explain the plot of uh, Avengers Infinity War to our six- and five-year-old. The reason this happened was um, Mel, my wife, had bought them some coloring books, and they had, like, it was Avengers coloring books, and so they were obviously asking about all the characters on them and what happens to them and all that kind of stuff. I won't, I won't drop any spoilers in this bit, but I had to try and explain to them, and again, no spoilers, I had to try and explain to them the, the kind of plot. So it turns on, the, the, the main villain in this, uh, in this movie is called Thanos, which I'm pretty sure is Greek for death. And if you've seen the movie, you'll know why. Um, but, uh, but basically, he's an interesting villain because most, most villains in comic books sort of in the, in the Marvel sort of universe are reasonably similar or predictable. Uh, they want to maximize either their power or their rule or their money or their influence or whatever it is. But this one is, is slightly different. This one kind of turns on the idea that Thanos believes that he's doing what is good for the universe because the biggest problem that the universe is facing is overpopulation. The overpopulation is a drain on resources on planets and the way to have sustainable, flourishing life is to ensure that there are not too many people on every planet. And so he's obviously not a mathematician. He's just decided that 50% will be a good number to halve all the populations by. And so his main motivation isn't money or power. He only wants to seek power to the end that he might have the ability to reduce all the populations by 50%. Well, that's an interesting idea to engage with. It's also the case that throughout history, we've seen that when people have a belief about what the biggest problem is in the world is and it's wrong, that it has devastating consequences. We know that Hitler's belief was that the main problem in the world was Jewish Bolsheviks. 
and he went about finding a solution to that problem and put all the resources of a modernized economy toward it. And the result was disaster. That Stalin believed that it was free markets and nationalism and religion that were ruining everything and set his mind to it. And over 20 million deaths later, the results were disastrous. See, the truth is everybody has a working theory, whether you know it or not. Everybody has a working theory about what you think is the biggest problem in the world. The only question is, are you right or not? Is it really the biggest problem or not? Does it really match up with reality? Because the claim of Scripture is that there is one big main problem, and it affects all of us, and it's the issue of sin. And that until that is dealt with, that every other problem will continue to go round and round and round, that we will see the same things happen again and again and again. Because until this is dealt with, the problem is not dealt with. And so I'm going to pray that as we dig into God's Word, we'll see what it is that He means by this, that we might not misunderstand it, because there are many misunderstandings about what the Bible says about sin, but that we might see in it God's plan and His solution. So let's pray on this. Lord, we praise You that You are infinite in wisdom and strength and goodness, that You reveal Yourself through Your Word, and that in the Bible we see the story of the universe, the one that you have created and that you are bringing to its conclusion. And so, Father, we pray that we would understand it rightly and clearly and that this might be for the glory of your name. Amen. The first part of the Bible story, as I kind of mentioned before, was creation. And if you're with us last week, uh, you'll know that the, the repetition in that first passage is, and God made, and it was good. The idea is that God has created a good and ordered and designed universe. It's not random. It's not chaotic. You're not an accident and things haven't happened by accident. It was created by a good and ordered God. And that he has ordered the universe in order that life might flourish and that it might be beautiful and good. And we see it again and again and again. But also in this, I don't know if you noticed it last week, He gives humanity, as he creates this space for humanity to live, for life to flourish, he gives humanity a mission and a task to complete. Look at what it says in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And this sets the whole Bible story in motion. It will come up on the screen for you. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Another one before that, I think. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male, uh, him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every moving thing that moves on the earth. In Genesis 1, we saw that God gives his creation order and shape. He puts things in the right spot. He creates this space for life to flourish. But then he stops and he creates humankind. This is the only part of creation of which which God says they are made in my image. So there's something unique about humanity. We have inherent dignity and worth. But he also gives humanity a task to fill the earth and subdue it. The plan is this. At this point in the story, There is one tiny part of the earth over which there are humans who are looking after the earth, who are loving one another as they're supposed to, and worshipping God and loving Him. And His plan is that they would one day cover the earth completely. 
that humankind would multiply and would continue to create this garden-like atmosphere across the whole world. He's given them a task. And he's done it for, their, for our joy. You think of it like this. My, my kids love playing puzzles, and I love playing puzzles with them. Got to admit to you, a few of the puzzles are a bit simple. Harper, our three-year-old, has one. It's literally two pieces. So it's, you know, and sometimes she still gets it wrong. So you know, a bit frustrating. But, um, but it, it's, it would be weird. It, like, if I wanted to get it done as fast as possible, I would just say, look, just go over and get yourself a cup of tea. I'll sort this out. It'd be done in a few seconds, right? That would be the fastest possible way to get their puzzles done. But that's not the point, is it? The, the way that I enjoy puzzles with my kids is to see them complete it. You, you want them to actually do it. And I think in some small way, that might be an image of what we're seeing of how God rela- relates to humankind here. He could have completed the task himself. The, the end point is to have a, an earth that is covered with people made in the image of God, loving him and loving one another and looking after the earth that they've been created to look after. But he gives this task to humankind, that it might be their joy to complete it. And so this is what sets the Bible story in motion. This is the end point that God has in mind. But no sooner are we out the gates when it seems like it's all gone to pieces. One chapter later, really, in Genesis 3, we read this. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So it starts here with a talking snake who is Satan, a malevolent spiritual being who is set on destruction. Now, if you're skeptical about the Bible story, you might be tempted to tap out right there. But can I urge you just to hold on for a tick? The Bible engages with issues like evil and wickedness. Now these are not, this is not language that is native to a a scientific kind of vocabulary. In fact, if you have ever reached for the word evil to describe something, you have stepped into the realm of supernatural. This is not just merely natural language. When, when, when journalists were looking for language to describe the kind of atrocities that were happening in northern Iraq and Syria as IS expanded their empire, it was, it was flooded with words like wicked, evil, unspeakable, all these things, because really that, was, that seemed like the most apt way to describe it. And the truth is that we need supernatural categories in order to describe some, some things because the weight of them seems to go beyond mere just description like inappropriate or inconvenient. Now, in in another series that we did called Life, um, we go through a whole bunch of things about how the the Bible engages with evolutionary theory and all of that. I'd really encourage you to take the time to dig into that if that's something that's really on your mind at this point. But if I could ask you even to set that aside for right now, just because for the sake of time we need to move through this text, but we'd, we'd love to engage further with that, and that's one way to do that or to talk afterwards. But as we travel through here, what we see is this interaction between Satan and humankind and his desire is to bring chaos and disorder. And the way that he does that, what we saw from that passage before, is he tempts humankind with one single thought about God. And it's to doubt everything we just learned in Genesis 1. Genesis 1 makes the claim 
that God created the world, that he is a good God and he created it good. He is lavish and extravagant that he creates a space for humankind to flourish and to find joy. And Satan says, did God really say you can't eat from anything in the, in the garden? And you can see already at this point that humanity is buying in. Eve buys in. She's like, yeah, actually, well, he didn't say not any, but there is one that we can't eat. And you must not even touch it or you'll die. Now, if you read Genesis 2, you know that that's not what he said. But it seems like you're starting to buy the idea that, yeah, maybe God is holding something back that's good. Maybe he isn't such a good God. Maybe he is kind of a cruel taskmaster. Maybe the way that God works is he knows that we could have more joy and happiness elsewhere. But if we just obey him and miss out on those good things, well, for one, he won't punish us. But also, he's got some good stuff that we can get at the end of time. And and that's worth holding out for. Satan is looking to tempt with the idea that God is not good. And then, in fact, it would be better for you to take moral responsibility for your life. That actually you are the one who should have the right to decide what is right and wrong for you. That is how the Bible defines sin. When I say, look, God either is unimportant or he doesn't even exist. But either way, I decide what's right and wrong for me. But here, the claim of the scripture is that God is not that way, that he calls us to follow his good design because just as good music conforms to the laws of rhythm and melody, so we were called to conform to the law of God's design. But Satan here says, no, 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 that's not how God works. He's holding out on you. And humanity buys in. And look what happens in Genesis 3, 6 to 7. It says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Here, Adam and Eve, who represent the totality of humankind at this point, have bought into the lie that God is not good, He is not out for your good, you're better off to, to decide what is right and wrong for yourself. And they feel the consequences immediately. Because what happens here, it says here in the text, it says they took and ate of the fruit and immediately they realized that they were naked. Did they not have eyes before? Did they not realize they had no clothes before? It's not saying that they realized for the first time that they looked down they're like, oh my gosh, we've been starkers the whole time. What's happened? What has happened is once they have broken God's good order, the good order in which they were meant to love God and love one another and rule over the creation in good order, once they realize that that can be broken, they realize, hey, wait a minute, I can hurt you and you can hurt me. And suddenly they realize, I'm naked, I'm vulnerable. I'm not, this is no longer a safe place to be. Sin introduces threat into, the, into creation. This is not the way that it was meant to be. They're born into the lie and the consequences are immediate. See, sin is when we take matters into our own hands. We say, we're going to decide what is right for me and put my needs first. And at, in the, at the heart of it, this is the, the cause of all misery throughout all human history, isn't it? It's me before you. This is what has resulted in such a mess in the world. This is why there is war and starvation and abuse and violence. It's me before you. And it's not how God created his, his people to flourish. And you might ask, well, how can God allow so much suffering in the world? 
How could he allow this to happen? Well, the truth is, really, he's allowing us to do what we want. Sin is when I say, look, I'm going to decide what's right and wrong for me. And when you have a planet filled with people who are thinking that way, it is, it is set for inevitable chaos and clash. But you might go a step further. You might say, well, you know what? If, if a parent just let their kid do whatever they want to do, you would call that parent negligent, wouldn't you? That would be a fair charge against that parent. So if God just lets us what we do what we want to do in sin, surely he could at the very least be charged with negligence. If he was to, to have no consequences for how his people act, to help them to make good choices. But the truth is that God does introduce consequences. Look at what happens in Genesis 3, 22 to 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It explains that God can no longer live in close relationship with his people. And so there is separation. And what enters the human experience for the first time is pain and death. That God says he cannot, now having sinned, now having brought in this chaos and disorder, continue to live on forever. Now it sounds outrageous, but in, in fact, if you think about it, it is a matter of grace, isn't it? It is grace that Stalin was not immortal. That his reign had to come to an end. That Hitler could not reign on forever. That it was the fact that his life could be extinguished and his influence in that degree ended. Humankind cannot keep living forever in sin. God has to act. But it also speaks, this passage also speaks to why death is so painful. It's not the way that things were meant to be. If you and I are just a bunch of accumulated atoms kind of floating in, in an unsympathetic universe, then death is no more extraordinary than life. There's nothing to it. But that's not our experience. Genesis explains why. We were made to live forever in right relationship with our Creator. And death is a rupture to that order. Sin has cut us off from our life source. And what we see is what, what happens in Genesis 3 continues all the way through. As we move from Genesis 3 to 11, what we see is the unfolding chaos that sin brings. Instead of this story of, of, of humanity in the image of God continuing to spread beauty and order across his earth, instead it spreads chaos and sin and disaster. No sooner have Adam and Eve had children, but these brothers are at war with one another. That Cain, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. And no sooner are they old enough to be men who can till the earth, than one wants to murder the other. And God intervenes and he says to Cain, who is looking to kill his brother, he says, Cain, sin is crouching at the door and desires to have you, but you must master it. And this tells us something significant about sin. Here, God is almost personifying sin as having a desire. Notice he didn't say to Cain, he doesn't say, Cain, I can see that you want to kill your brother. Don't do it. He says, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. It's like, it's a, a, like a predator. Now, this is a weird way to talk about it, isn't it? 
if sin is just a choice that I make, a decision that I make, isn't it just a thing that I can do or not do? But when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about sin not just in terms of our behavior, but it unleashes something that, that really we can't quite control once it gets going. The best way I could think to illustrate it is, is kind of like madness. Years and years ago, there was a, a movie that I, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure won the, um, what is it, the Oscar for Best Film, a film called Beautiful Mind, which was starring Russell Crowe, Rusty, big ups to him. But he, um, it was a movie about um, John Nash, who was a mathematician. So he was a Nobel laureate for economics, but his main work was in maths. But some of the, the theories that he developed were then applied to economics, and that's what he was awarded for. But, um, but sort of in the, in the middle of his career, his colleagues started to notice that he was acting strangely and erratically and all this kind of stuff. And, and the film kind of explains what was going on through that passage of his life um, with a, a reasonable degree of accuracy, some sort of, you know, a few embellishments. But basically what had happened was he, just, he started to develop a, a paranoid kind of worldview where he believed the government was after him. And so he applied his brilliant mathematical mind to things like newspapers to find codes, to see what it was that they were trying to communicate. He, he was constantly worried that he was being surveilled. And he, got, he, in the end, became so paranoid that he had to be admitted to a mental institution. Now, with that, it's funny because all of his behavior was completely rational. It's just that it was all based on a single thought that was out of touch with reality. If the government was really after him, Everything that he did from there on was completely rational and normal. If the government was after him, it makes sense to make evasive maneuvers on your way home from work. If the government's really after you, it's, it's worth looking for codes or signs that they're trying to communicate or whatever it is. The problem was it was based on a single thought that was completely out of step with reality. And his path back to mental health meant rejecting thoughts like that because once it grabbed hold of his mind, it wreaked absolute havoc on his life. Now, it's not a perfect illustration, but that is a, as close an idea as we can get to this thing of sin. It's a single idea, the idea that maybe God is not good and I'd be better off taking charge of my own life. But once that thought takes hold, there is a whole madness that is completely out of step with the good ordered reality that he has created that leads to and unleashes chaos. And we see it in the Bible. Cain cannot get a hold of it. And he murders his own brother in cold blood. And the sin and chaos continues to spread from there. In fact, it's so bad by the time we get to the story of Noah that God is like, I'm going to wipe humanity out. That actually, the wickedness is so great that their wickedness is, they think only evil thoughts all the time. It is unbearable to look at or to be a part of. And he starts again, but no sooner has he started again, then sin continues to spread again. It's disaster. Sin is the biggest problem in the world. And it's this tension point between God's plan to create an earth that is covered with people who are made in His image, who love Him and love one another and look after creation, and the reality that sin is destroying and ruining all of that. This is the whole tension point, the whole way through this story that comes to its conclusion in Jesus. But in case you're kind of getting the image that God had this great plan and humanity just blindsided him, and he didn't know what to do, we see that even in this passage, even in Genesis 3, even right after this first issue of sin has come up, that God already has what he is going to do in mind. I don't know if you saw it there, but in Genesis 3.15, look at what it says. 
God says this is him talking to the snake, to Satan. He addresses him and says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. See, here we see what some theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. This is the first glimpse of Jesus that we get in the gospel. And it's right there in the beginning at Genesis 3. God is saying to Satan, he's saying, look, down the line, I'm putting a clash point in place. That there will be one born of woman and he will be Jesus and you will wound him, but he will mortally wound you. And if you follow the story through, you'll see that's exactly what happens. When it comes to the story of Jesus, he is struck down on the cross. And yet we see that rather than it being the result of more sin, that this is in fact how God finally proposes to deal with sin completely. In 2 Corinthians 5.21 it says, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might be the righteousness of God. Jesus comes faces the penalty for our sin, faces the death and separation from God that we had earned through sin and takes it in our place so that we might be made new and welcomed in. The tension point of the Bible finds its resolution in Jesus. And this is the wisdom of God. See, if you are someone who would put your hand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I, I believe God's word, I believe this story, then this isn't just a story that's interesting for you or that you need to get your head around to see how it fits together. This is also your story. It means that you believe that sin is the greatest problem in the world and that for you in Jesus it has been completely solved. And so the point of understanding this Bible story is is not so much that you'll be able to say clever things in a Bible study about ancient Near Eastern mythologies or things like that, but that you would understand the weight of this story. You were dead in sin and have been made alive in Christ. Now this is massive. See, is it the case that you live like one whose biggest problem has been completely solved by Jesus? In the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 7, There's a story about Jesus' interaction with some religious leaders. He's starting to get a bit of notoriety as a teacher. And so a a Pharisee, so a religious leader called Simon, decides to have Jesus around for a meal. But it's not so much a kind of a a peer-to-peer meal. It seems like what he's probably doing is weighing up whether they're the same kind of people. The Pharisees believed that if we were just holy enough, that God would kind of reverse the fortunes of Israel. He'd kick out the occupying Romans and everything would be great again. And, uh, and they were trying to work out, is Jesus on our team or not? And so Simon the Pharisee has Jesus over for a meal. But while they're sitting down to a meal, a woman walks in. And all we're told in the story is that she was a sinner, which is probably Luke's gentle way of explaining that she was a prostitute. And so she walks in to a, a meal of religious leaders, men, and breaks every kind of ancient Near Eastern social norm in doing so. And as she goes in, She breaks open a jar of oil that would have cost about a year's wages and she starts wiping Jesus' feet with her hair and with the oil. And Jesus can see that the the men around the table are at fever pitch at this point. And so he says, he addresses Simon the Pharisee and he says, Simon, I just want to tell you something. And whenever that happens, whenever Jesus is about to drop a story, you know he's about to drop a hammer. He says, I'm just going to tell you a story. 
probably got nothing to do with nothing, but I'm just going to throw it out there and see what happens, Simon. He says, um, there, were, there were two men. One had a really small debt. The other had a really big debt. And they owed it to a king, and the king forgave them their debts. Which one do you think was more thankful about it? And Simon says, obviously, the one with the, the bigger debt would have been more thankful. And he says, you've judged correctly. And then he says, Simon, when I walked in here, you gave me no kiss. You didn't really give me any of the sort of customs of hospitality that go with our culture. You really haven't done much for me. And yet this woman has come in and poured oil on her feet and has not stopped tending to me. And then he makes this comment to draw the conclusion. He says, therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He makes this point. A woman who is a prostitute who is very much aware of her sin understands that when she is forgiven by her Savior, that it means everything. And yet a religious leader who probably thinks he's somewhat on par with God, who could have God round for lunch and tell him what for, has missed the point entirely. Jesus says, He who is forgiven little loves little. If you do not see sin as a great problem, you will not see God as a great Savior. That is the whole point of this Bible story, that sin is deadly madness. And the problem with madness is that madmen don't know they're mad. There is no way out. And yet God made a way out. So do you get this? If you're a follower of Jesus, do you love your Savior in right proportions to how deep your sin problem is and was and how much it has been taken care of? See, are you a person who is genuinely just ungrateful? It may be because your doctrine of sin is anemic. It's weak. And you're unhappy and ungrateful because you have a weak doctrine of sin and so it doesn't really seem like God has done that much for you lately. Or maybe you're judgmental. Maybe you believe that really the way that you became a Christian was because you made smart moral choices rather than you're a sinner who was saved from the very depths of your sin. Maybe you're entitled and feel constantly hard done by. It feels like everyone else has got a free ticket and life is just that hard for you. And I can say if that's you, that is definitely me. If we were to sit down and have a pity party, I could out-pity you for myself every time. That's the one party I could actually stay up for. I easily pout, and it takes very little for me to feel hard done by. Even one night, I remember a couple of weeks ago, my wife and I were heading out on a date night. Such a, a good night. Someone had actually bothered to take the time to babysit for us. The kids were asleep. We were heading out for a good meal. And about two minutes into the drive, we got a flat tire, and my, my mood just went dark. And I was like, oh, this is going to cost hundreds. It costs like $15 to repair a tire. I don't know why I'd just forgotten that. I was thinking like, oh, I'm going to have to call the NRMA. I was like, oh, that's right. You can actually just get the jack out of the boot. And it was done in like 10 minutes, right? Like all this stuff. I was, but my mood dropped so quickly as if the biggest problem in the world was that the universe had conspired against me to ruin my day and night. When in fact, the reality was I was dead in sin and I've been made alive in Christ. If you are constantly disappointed by others, it might be because your doctrine of sin is too weak. One philosopher, not a believer, says this. He says, It was because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we were always being so disappointed. Disappointed by the refusal of other people to be reasonable, by the behavior of nations and politicians, and by the recurrent fact of war. The reality of sin lets us know that, look, as much 
as much grace and, gain, as, and ground as we may gain in this life, nothing will be dealt with until Jesus finally deals with sin on that last day. The truth is that the biggest problem in the world is sin. And if you know Jesus, that issue has been dealt with. And it should transform the way that you live. If it's true that he has been forgiven little loves little, then he who has been forgiven much loves much. Let me just illustrate it in one last way like this. Imagine in, in, in this way. You're in a foreign country. You've, you've hired a vehicle to travel around. And you're, you're driving foolishly to show off to the other people in your car. And you end up hitting someone. And it's a child and they die. But worse than that, you realize that this wasn't just any child. That this was the prince of the king. And this is a monarchy where king is judge, jury, and executioner. And so you have just taken the life of the son of the king, the one who has power over your life, and you are standing in their presence awaiting your sentence. Then imagine that rather than sentencing you to death, you are forgiven, and more than that, you are welcome to live in, that your medical expenses are paid for by the king, and he welcomes you to live in his palace to show you how to live that you might not act so foolishly ever again. Now, if you were to hear a story like that, you would obviously believe that that is complete fiction. Where in the world would that happen? And yet that's the gospel story. That sin is that deadly a thing that any one of us here would have killed the very Son of God and would have been there calling for His death along with the rest of them. And yet, He was the one who died for us to set us free. That is the depths of our forgiveness. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. I mean, wouldn't that change the way that you treat other people? If you woke up with that reality on your mind, wouldn't it change the way that you respond to God? He who is being forgiven much must love much. But if you are unconvinced of who Jesus is, I would urge you to, be, to get sure about where you stand. It is the case, and the claim of the Bible is that sin is your biggest issue. The Bible's claim is that if you do not know Jesus, that at the end, after death, you will face the very anger of God. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath, the anger of God, remains on him. That means the free offer for life is here for you even right now. Now think of it even in this way. Imagine, to kind of just shift gears a little bit, Imagine Channel 10 continued their direction, their downward decline, towards lowest common denominator game shows. And, um, and let's imagine that things got so bad and so desperate that they were, they were actually able to come up with a show called The Game of Life and Death. And the way it works is this. You can, you can go on the show for free, and when you get there, you stand in, in the middle of a room, and there are three doors, and they will hurdle you headlong through one of these doors, whichever one you choose. And they tell you that this is what's behind them. Behind one of the doors, and you don't know which one, obviously, that's the game. Behind one of the doors is a million dollars. Behind one of the doors is nothing. You came with nothing, you leave with nothing. And behind one of the doors is a 180-foot drop to certain death. Would anyone in their right mind play that game? No one who, no one who valued their life would play a game like that. And yet I would put to you that maybe many or most people live exact, that exact gamble when it comes to death. That based on a hunch that, yeah, I think all dogs do go to heaven. Or actually, you know, I think there's really, there was nothing and there will be nothing. 
wherever you're at, your life is too precious to throw it at a gamble. If, if this stuff, this stuff about Jesus is a complete fairy tale, then fine, make sure that you are sure about that because it's not worth throwing away on a gamble. The claim in the scriptures that our biggest problem is sin and that Jesus is the answer, it would be foolish to go past this and not be sure of where you stand. If free life is on offer, you'd be crazy not to investigate it. And so I'd even encourage you, if that's where you're at today, that there is nothing stopping you from making that decision even now right today. And if that is you, we would love to help you with that. We'll be here to pray with you after the service or if you wanted to write it down on the slip or whatever it is because this matters that much. You've got to be sure that you're sure. I'm going to pray now that God would open our eyes that we would be sure. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that though we were dead in sin, you have made a way to life in Christ. That Jesus was sent on our behalf to die in our place that we might be reconciled to you. You have set a day and a time when you will deal with the biggest issue in the universe where sin will be wiped out completely and that all who have faith in Christ will be drawn home to you forever. And Father, we pray that even those in this room, that everyone in this room would be there on that last day to celebrate together and to glory in Christ. Father, for those who are here and convinced that Christ is King, may our lives reflect it. May we be full of the love of the gospel, that we would overflow in joy and thankfulness to you and in love for others. And Father, if there are those who are unconvinced, may your spirit open their eyes to see the depths and the wonder of the gospel, that they might find joy and peace and hope and meaning in you. And Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name. Amen. We're going to spend just a minute now reflecting on the depths of that reality. And then after that, Jacob's going to lead us in what's happening next before we stand and sing.